This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show here on the network. I am one of the hosts, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is always, from the land of the World Cup, Dan (laughs) Gunther. How's it going, Dan? Hey, Matthew. Not too bad. Uh, Enjoying the wonderful warm summer weather up here. Uh, Sometimes a little bit too warm, but hanging in there. Me too. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually a warmer day here, and uh, our apartment is not air-conditioned. So, yeah, just um, got the windows open and praying for a breeze. <laughs> here, here. Well, um, yeah, did uh, you get a chance to, to watch Do You Like uh, Football, uh, as they call it in the rest of the world, uh, a little <laughs> soccer action? Yeah, no, I've been enjoying a few of the games. A uh, little bit of a heartbreaker to uh, see the Canadians lose there to uh, England, but, you know, best of luck to England and all of that. So, Yeah, unfortunately, England lost today, as we're recording this, Oh um, shoot! <laughs> as the player for their team was trying to clear the ball over their own goal and she accidentally scored on them. Oh, no. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, so it shows how much I've yeah. been paying attention since Canada lost. <laughs> yeah, it's disappointing. I, I was sad for them because I kind of wanted it to be an England-U.S. matchup in the final. We'll be rematching with Japan, which is a replay of four years ago. Um, so, yeah, very excited. Uh, my wife and I are huge fans of, of um, soccer, and, and it's always great to watch the ladies play. It's... So much fun. Um, we have been uh, dancing joyfully around <laughs> the house for those different games. So, Well, congratulations to the U.S. team, for sure. I yeah. tip my hat. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, but nobody's here to listen to us talk about sports ball. Um, they're here to listen to us talk about the news uh, for some Star Trek books. And, Dan, we actually have... Some news to report, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, it's definitely exciting. Uh, we've got some uh, blurbs that have been released for some of the novels coming uh, coming to us in 2016. And it looks like there's some really good stuff coming. Uh, we've got, of course, the next Voyager novel after the one that's coming out later this year. Uh, some original series and some Enterprise blurbs to read for you here. Well, this is, I mean, this is crazy, the fact that we already have the blurb for A Pocket Full of Lies, which is taking place after Atonement. Uh, It's due out in September, Atonement is. And so this might have some minor spoilers for Atonement. So actually, Dan, I don't want to read this one on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if anyone would like to read this, um, we will definitely put the link in the show notes. But I think that this one, because we haven't even read Atonement yet and nobody has that out yet, um, I, I just wanted to have everybody be aware of this one. Um, but it's, it's really something I think needs to be read at the discretion of the reader. And, uh, I don't even want to give the spoiler warning because yeah, it's, um, I, I, I don't like to ruin the Voyager books, you know, <laughs> that Kirsten writes. Um, I like to kind of go in as with knowing as little as possible because I really just like what she does. And, uh, this one kind of does give some things away that would... I think harm some of the resolution for um, 
atonement, especially since some of this has to do with uh, Admiral Janeway. Um, and she has a pretty big storyline coming up in atonement right now. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a good choice. Uh, it is pretty spoilery. I'm kind of on the fence whether I'm glad that I read it or not, but... Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's leave that definitely in the choice of the listeners, and they can decide if they want to have that quote-unquote spoiled or not. Uh, one thing we can reveal, though, is uh, the next uh, TOS novel blurb uh, coming from James Swallow. Uh, this one will be coming out uh, next year as well, and it's called The Ladder Fire and takes place during the ever-popular five-year mission. The five-year mission of the Starship Enterprise has brought a vessel and her crew to the forefront of an important first contact situation. Under the command of James T. Kirk, the ship is headed to the planet Sahar Prime in the Beta Quadrant, the home of an alien civilization preparing to take its first steps into the galactic stage. One year earlier, the Enterprise came across a badly damaged Sahari vessel, Drifting in deep space, in collaboration with the explorer's captain, Kirk and his crew were able to help restore the ship to full function and send it on its way. And now the Sahari display rapid technological advances made over the past year. Hard questions must be asked. Did the Enterprise crew leak advanced technology or information to the Sahari during their first encounter in total violation of the Prime Directive? <laughs> bum bum bum. Yeah, this one sounds pretty cool. Uh, you know, kind of going back to the Prime Directive well, which can get a little tiresome, but I like the setup here. It sounds pretty interesting. And of course, James Swallow, I've always been a fan of his work. So this looks pretty good. I really can't uh, say that I'm not excited just because it is James. And uh, it's been a long time since I've seen him write in this universe. In fact, I'm thinking back the last time he worked anywhere near TOS was the book with uh, Valeris. Um, oh, that's Cast right. No Shadow. Yeah. And so it's just, it's been a long time for James. So I'm excited for him. I know he loves the TOS universe. So I'm glad he's really getting an opportunity to uh, check that out. Definitely, yeah. Uh, and then uh, the next month after that, we get another entry in uh, Christopher L. Bennett's Rise of the Federation series. Uh, this one sounds pretty cool. Uh, the title is just revealed here as well, called Live by the Code. And this kind of picks up right after Uncertain Logic. So this one, we will give a spoiler warning. Uh, if you haven't read Uncertain Logic yet, uh, maybe jump ahead just a minute on the podcast. Uh, but it's been out, so I think we'll go ahead and read this one. Uh, Captain T'Pol and the crew of the USS Endeavor are returning home after unsuccessfully searching for the renegade Vulcan Vlas, whom T'Pol is strongly motivated to bring to justice after recent events. They are surprised to be confronted by a Klingon military vessel, since the Klingons have been torn by internal strife for the past several years and have largely left the Federation alone. They are even more surprised when the Klingon captain makes a grudgingly polite request for the assistance of Dr. Phlox. Klingon Chancellor Marek has died, and given the intense factional strife within the High Council, the parties have agreed that they need an objective arbiter to determine whether or not he died of natural causes. Meanwhile, back at Starfleet headquarters, Jonathan Archer is settling into his new role as Chief of Staff of Starfleet's USPA Division. The Council's inability to work with Marek helped keep the Empire ineffectual and the Federation safe. But what if the next Chancellor is more unifying and decides to rally his people against the Federation? I'm really not sure where this is taking the story because it's not where I expected it to go mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, yeah, I was kind of expecting, and I mean, maybe we will see, but uh, I was thinking it would have more to do with the where and that whole storyline. And I mean, that might still play into it, but yeah, nothing about that in this blurb at all. That and nothing about the rest of what's been going on in Vulcan, I mean, we're still left with looking for Vloss, and I feel like that's a huge storyline, um, and I'm I'm really surprised to not see more of that playing out, and the fact that we're kind of moving towards the Klingons here uh, is really interesting, and I wonder if that is because Christopher L. Bennett is starting to kind of set up the... Um, frustrations between the Klingon Empire and the Federation that would lead to the Four Years' War. Hmm, interesting, yeah. 
<laughs> so um, I'm not sure. I don't know my Starfleet history well enough to tell you exactly when that happened. All the Axanar people right now are just like crying out that I I don't know this, um, <laughs> and and they probably do. But my guess is, you know, moving forward, that's that's one of the big things that happens next for the Federation that we kind of knew of in the history line mm-hmm. uh, before we get to the original series where it's they've kind of reached that Cold War status. Um, and so I'm very interested, yeah, to see where this is going and, you know, Uncertain Logic, I really enjoyed and, uh, Live by the Code. Uh, what a, I couldn't think of a better name for a book, uh, having to do with Klingons and honor and all that. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of makes me wonder in kind of the same way that Uncertain Logic kind of had the double meaning of dealing with the Vulcans and dealing with the where, uh, you know, computer logic and that kind of thing. I wonder if living by the code kind of might be a little bit of a hint that way as well, might again have that double meaning. I think that's that's a good pickup there because there is no mention of what Malcolm is doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, him and his task force are still working on the where problem. And so I like that pickup there and that even just the title could let us know some things that will probably happen in the book that the blurb doesn't mention because, I mean, the blurb can't give everything, especially in a Christopher L. Bennett book. Right. And, I mean, these Enterprise books just always seem to have so much going on in them. So, you know, I can totally understand if some things just kind of had to be left out of the blurb. (laughs) Definitely. Well, all of these are exciting, and uh, we will definitely put the link there in the show notes so you can check out all the blurbs and, of course, read the Voyager one if you want before Atonement. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited, you know, next year, it looks like it's going to be another good year starting off for Star Trek books with Enterprise, Voyager, and, you know, a great new TOS novel. Dan, I am excited because we are going to cover a book today that I remembered as being one of my favorite Star Trek books ever. And I'm always very interested to return to a book that I really, really enjoyed, you know, years back. And and the big question becomes to you, you know, does it live up? Um, does it live up to what you remembered? And so that'll be something really interesting as we discuss the book um, to see if that actually happens. We're going to be talking about Christopher L. Bennett's Ex Machina, which which I have always been a fan of because it takes place after the motion picture. And we know that Kirk and the crew had another five-year mission at that point, and, which I always thought was so interesting because you're finally in the cool Enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... <laughs> What a what a great ship to be going out and exploring. One, you're it's bigger. Two, it's more powerful. Three, it's faster. And four, it just is the best looking Enterprise out there. Just so beautiful. Agreed completely. I mean, it's got that cool Aztec pattern all over it. All those floodlights. I mean, man, who wouldn't want to picture that Enterprise when you're reading a novel? And yet, so few novels have been set in this era. And yeah, no, this is great because it's one of the few novels that actually explores that era and makes i think very good use of what's happening and what's been going on in that time period so yeah definitely very excited to talk about this one tonight well and there is so much that happens between the motion picture and star trek 2 because they've been on another five-year mission and then by the time star trek 2 rolls around kirk's an admiral again 
And, you know, Spock is in control of the Enterprise and they're using it for training missions. I mean, so there is got to be some incredible stories that happened in that time period. And I've just got to say, um, Pocket Books, if you're listening, I would love to see more you know novels in this time period because, gosh, you know, just make the decision of when they change uniforms and you can even put them in the maroon jackets, you know, as soon as you want, pretty much. Um, I would just really like to see this time period explored because this is when the characters were really changing so much, you know, between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. And then, of course, the search for Spock. These characters grow immensely. Um, And... Uh, the growth, part of that growth is really explored here with some of the character changes that we got with the motion picture. Mm-hmm. I think part of what it is, is in the original series, I mean, I love the characters in the original series, but in a lot of ways, they're very basic kind of archetypes. You have the heroic captain, you have the cold, logical uh, brains of the outfit, and you have the passion of Dr. McCoy, and then rest of them basically (laughs) and then by the time we get to the movie era these are real people now they've actually gone through some character growth they've they've their characters have been stretched and and you know actually treated as though they are real flesh and blood characters rather than just archetypes one of the things that we really got with the motion picture was this fact that spock was profoundly changed from trying to achieve colonar to having an emotional response to everything that happened with V'ger. And now we really are left with um, what is he going to be? Who is he going to be? Can he figure out that? And uh, this whole book, I think, um, if anyone is handled well, I think it is Spock. uh, As he struggles to come to terms with the fact that he's realized he must find a way to integrate his emotions and not just deny them because he's seen the lack of all emotion. And that was with Figer, the idealized version of what only logic could be. And of course, logic left Figer with despair, no hope. Um, and it didn't even know that because it didn't have emotions whatsoever. All it knows is that it it has it has nothing left, really. This um, simple feeling was just so alien to it, as Spock yeah. said. Yeah, um, which was so interesting because this book really, as exploring Spock, um, I think it really kind of asked some really major questions too about with with V'ger of what was it that it needed, and was it just emotion or is there something more intrinsic to living beings that um in some ways make us special i I guess is for lack of a better term you know there's a spark of life to say um viger needed a soul you know, mm. it, it needed soul. <laughs> um, it, it's all about Call him soul. Louis Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, it wouldn't have understood Louis Armstrong. Um, and but now that it has Decker and Ilea, it does. So, but yeah, with merging those two together of all the knowledge of of it had accumulated, and the the emotional spiritual core of Decker and Ilea, it becomes a more rounded be uh, you know so really big questions they're asking about spock and then tying that into the growth of 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 Viger and what comes and so i really like that part of the book for sure mm-hmm. that was definitely one of my favorite things in this novel too was you know the idea of like you say spock realizing and coming to that profound conclusion about his his own character basically that logic is not enough. And, you know, it's one thing for him to kind of, you know, realize that about V'ger, but to really internalize that and embrace that about himself and, you know, play with the fact that he is actually half human. He isn't just a Vulcan trying to control a side of him that he doesn't like. He really merges those two into, you know, the unique spock that he is and again i mean we've brought it up before it goes back to 
the journey that Spock starts here and carries on throughout the movies to where he tells Valeris in Star Trek VI, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Uh, and it's here that we really see Spock first kind of experimenting with that, uh, with those two halves of himself to really create a unique being. Well, and it was really interesting because it did lead me to the question of, and this might be a complete tangent, but I think it's interesting. And we were talking a little bit about it on the other side of the page. How does that affect like characters like Data and like say the Doctor when they are the very essence of what uh, V'ger was, which is just facts and figures, ones and zeros. They're programming. There's there's not anything more to them and so and then when you introduce say like with data like a, an emotion chip is that really truly emotion or is it just the imitation of emotion mm-hmm. um, how can it really work without that what happens for V'ger which is having that spark added that soul added with you know um, Decker and Ilea joining with it you know to give it that life you know real life you know in the um, not just kind of like a half-life. And that, that made some, for some really interesting questions for me because I left the book feeling like both Spock and V'ger had kind of learned that real life is more than just like facts and figures. It's more than just that cold, unrelenting logic. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's that's not a... That's not what makes life, you know, that that's just that's just knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. like um, and it's not even applied. You know, does that does any of this make sense? So where it yeah, where it kind of leads my thinking would be, for lack of a better term, kind of emergent property of emotions and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if, you know, kind of I guess V'ger was out there for a long, long time, but I still kind of wonder if left to its own devices would it have eventually have something like emotion kind of emerge or did it need kind of the spark added by Decker and Ilea to start it on that journey? Uh, For Data, just as kind of a tangent here as well, I really like, I think it's in one of the Cold Equations novels where Geordi, I think it's Geordi, says something along the lines of Data always had emotions. They just weren't human emotions they were android emotions and if you watch an episode like the offspring or you know any of like data's day or something like that i really do think that data has emotions and i think they're kind of an emergent property out of his interactions with his friends and people that he would call his friends um and the emotion chip i do have to say always kind of bugged me because it felt like an imposing of emotions or something resembling emotions from an outside force whereas he seemed to be developing that on his own over the course of the seven seasons of TNG and I might be kind of way out to lunch here but I'm wondering if maybe Decker and Ilea are less of an emotion chip type intervention and more of a just kind of spark to make V'ger realize that there's more than there was before. Does that kind of make sense? <laughs> the whole V'ger and Ilea Decker thing almost reminds me more of that, you know, in in the Bible, in Genesis, it talks about God forming humanity out of the dust of the ground and then breathing into them life. And that's almost more what I picture the the Decker and Ilea joining with V'ger is that it actually breathes into V'ger life. Before there's no real life, it's just a computer system gaining data. Mm-hmm. But it has nothing to do with that data. In the same way that a body just lying there, it, it doesn't have anything to do with anything until it, it's given life. And... With with Data, on the other hand, the character Data, I feel like that he is more the personification of the worship of humanity. That 
really what makes us good is what makes us human. The more human we are, the better we are. Like that's the very humanistic ideal, you know, that, mm-hmm. that it, it, we are the, we are in the embodiment of what's really best. And, and so in some ways, I think characters like Data and um, the Doctor, more than talking about the rights of, of um, AI or anything like that, really I think they just kind of reinforce the what's best is to be more like humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because their goal is to be just like us. Like, they, you know, the Doctor wants to be more like the people that he interacts with every day. That's why he starts doing all those things, learning all the learning. I say learning, but I mean, he doesn't really learn. He just downloads. It's it's like the Matrix, you know, <laughs> he just like, oh, I want to play violin. OK, you know, so um, in the same way with Data, too, he can play uh, a piece and yet it's it's going to be very logical. There's no emotion to it because he can't deviate. He doesn't know how, you know. Mm. So there there is this sense that something's missing from them in the end. Um, and so that's to me, and I could be way off base and really odd for saying all that because I, I don't. <laughs> I'm some fans might not agree with me, but to me that's always kind of off that they that they're the Pinocchio characters really who just want to be the real boy. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, almost a retelling of Frankenstein. Yes, you know, exactly, exactly. To take it to uh, to the extreme, there, yeah. Well, and and you know, this is Star Trek, so it's a more hopeful story than Frankenstein. <laughs> yes. Except though that we see with lore, Frankenstein was one of the repercussions of soon doing what he was doing. So, yeah, all these questions came up for me because it was an interesting question about the whole Vedra thing, and then Spock is dealing with these very same questions of of trying to find a way to integrate the emotion into his life and I thought that that was again we I think we just had a 10 minute conversation (laughs) about some of those the the depth of that question Mm -hmm. and um, so I think that's really fascinating and we obviously have no answers because we had trouble coming up with words even to describe what we were trying to talk about so (laughs) definitely yeah no I mean you know that's one of the best things that a book or well any piece of of art can do really is to provoke discussion and questions. And, uh, I almost lament the fact when I come away from something having made up my mind, because that's not interesting. What's interesting to me is the pondering of the question, right? Uh, you know, Philippa Louvois in the measure of a man says, you know, the basic question is, does data have a soul? I don't know that he does. I don't know that I do. But, you know, he deserves the chance to figure that out. After this, does V'ger have a soul? What is a soul? You know, um, does Spock have a soul? Do other Vulcans have souls? Like, if a Vulcan achieves Kulinar, is that losing a soul? Like, you know, it's it's an interesting thought. It really, I don't know, it gets pretty deep. <laughs> well, and that is something that the priestess was talking to Kirk about the whole time in the book, which was saying... You are so concerned with these facts and these figures, this cold logic, this this kind of cold information, but you're missing what truth is, which is is something deeper and more intrinsic. It 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 comes from and, and it almost felt like she was saying, it comes from your soul. You know it from the inside out, like that it's kind of written on your heart mm-hmm. um what real truth is and and it can't be denied. But that the Federation in general has kind of, and, and those type of people like the Vulcans, they've kind of denied that because they are so concerned with cold, hard logic, facts, figures, uh, taking the um, the idea of even there being a spiritual aspect to life. And I thought that was a really interesting thing in this book because you kind of get that feeling that um, uh, those characters were kind of teaching some of those things to our characters like Kirk and Spock and McCoy of saying, you guys just might be missing it by, by only looking at logic and what you think of as, is just pure science and all of that. Maybe there's something more. And by not asking those questions, you're actually hurting yourself, you know? So, and, and I thought that kind of opened the door a lot because that's exactly I think what Deep Space Nine does is that it 
actually ask those questions alongside the Star Trek questions mm-hmm. that we're used to. Um, and so, yeah, it was really interesting to see that. Um, I would say I have no qualms, and I will not mince words, though. I do not like in this book whatsoever the way that McCoy is dealt with. Um, I, I, I really, I, I have not hated something in a book in a long time, but I really hate this. Um, I don't think that it fits with what I know of Leonard H. McCoy as a character. Um, he, in this book, obviously is back on the Enterprise. You know, we remember he comes on, the the wonderful bell-bottomed hippie with the great <laughs> gold chain, wonderful beard. You know, he's he's been away from Starfleet for three years, and he didn't really want to be back, but he came back. And in this book, it's taken that basically he retired to the mountains and didn't do much. <laughs> uh, he secluded himself. And I I can't imagine that Bones would just be alone in, the, in a cabin in the woods and not at least have, like Scotty, tons of medical journals he's just pouring through. You know, like mm-hmm. I feel like he's the character who can't get away from his job, even if he wasn't practicing, you know, other than maybe... I, I just can't believe he turned into some kind of country bumpkin, and I feel like that's exactly what he's turned into in this book. Um, and I was really disappointed in that uh, because there's the great comics that happen, the Frontier Doctor where Bones is off during his time away from the Enterprise doing Doctors Without Borders, you know, mm-hmm. basically, and um, dealing with all these aliens and stuff. I mean, Bones is probably the most experienced doctor out in Starfleet. The Enterprise has had the biggest adventures. I mean, this guy has been one of the best doctors we've seen on Star Trek because he is always helping his patients, even if they're brand new alien species who just happen to look like us. They'd have a different color hair, but it's TOS, so we let <laughs> it go. Um, I just, I none of this seemed to fit Mm-hmm. with the McCoy that I know. And I don't know if, if I'm just taking it really hard because McCoy is my favorite character, but I've read so many books and, and comics or whatever with McCoy that this one just didn't, it didn't gel for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that uh, that feeling for sure. I kind of felt like, you know, it was kind of taking off of the whole McCoy's attitude when he first beams back onto the Enterprise, but almost just taking that to too far of a degree, you know, uh, he seemed contrary and stuff when he came aboard and, you know, curmudgeonly at the technical advances in the sick bay and stuff. But, you know, I felt that was more just him being kind of the joking McCoy more than than anything else. Um, that said, I, I really want my, you know, McCoy action figure with bell bottoms and disco action. But uh... oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way you did. You know, I the, the McCoy coming on the ship was just him being McCoy and complaining because mm-hmm. that's what he does. You know, like they changed my whole damn sick bay. Now I got to go figure it out again. You know, he used to know where everything single thing was, you know. Yeah. But, but the when fact it that... comes to crunch time, he would still yeah. be the competent doctor. Exactly. That we knew and loved. Yeah. Well, and and. The fact that he would have trouble with all of these different alien races and, and, you know, actually being able to help them out as a doctor just didn't, again, it didn't jive with me at all. Just because we never saw those alien characters on the original series didn't mean they weren't on the ship. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we also saw in the animated series that, you know, we did have alien crew members on the ship. So Bones would have had to be familiar with them i i yeah i was just really upset with and 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 honestly it it brought down as we're talking about does this book live up it this really brought it down for me um because it was really frustrating to kind of see him do that and i felt like in some ways it was almost because they were trying to make chapel that much more important Mm -hmm. like you know what i'm saying like they were degrading mccoy to make chapel look better but you don't need to do that. Yeah. You don't need to make Dr. McCoy the Dr. Zoidberg of the book. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, you don't need to make the guy a country bumpkin mm-hmm. to make her look like a genius. Um, you know, it could have been a much more collaborative thing with them where maybe they both can't figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the story, which 
in the end, it's not her that figures out the way to help him. It's him. So he kind of comes through with flying colors. But just the kind of the way they got there and everything, it just, I, I just, McCoy was the one character in the motion picture I felt that had the least amount to grow. Mm. It was Spock and Kirk that were really the ones that were struggling the yeah. most, you know? And McCoy was almost the mentor in that yeah. story, you yeah. know, telling Kirk, you know, when to kind of maybe dial it back a bit and don't be so hard on Decker and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, in this one, it, it seems to shift where McCoy's kind of now on that side of the equation, where he's out of his element. And he, he felt very competent throughout the rest of the motion picture. So yeah, I'm not sure why uh, the author decided to kind of dial that back and, and de-evolve him basically for this story. Well, and, and what was really frustrating is that he is talking to Natira uh, closer to the end of the book, and he shares with her the story about his dad and, you know, what he did, which we all learned about in Star Trek V, and how he never wanted to lose a patient again after that happened. And so it, it just flew in the face of everything that was coming before with the book where McCoy was so out of touch. Like, I just can't imagine McCoy ever being out of touch with medical advances because of what he just said in that story and so it was like you're contradicting what you've been doing with the character pretty badly with this story and him sharing it and and um you know we don't really hear that story obviously in canon till we get to star trek 5 so it was like you might have been better off not putting that story in at all because it's kind of hurting what you've been saying about the character all along. So mm. it was one of those th- parts of this book, and there's a few th- places in this book that I feel like this, that the, the themes aren't really cohesive and, and falling through all the way to the end. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of felt like they were making McCoy's story kind of an extension of the Kirk usurping Decker and putting the Enterprise into disarray story. Uh, which we kind of got a little bit in this, which I actually like, like that side of the story, Kirk and Decker and the crew's reaction to that. I actually really kind of appreciated that part of the story, because if you think about what happens in the motion picture, you know, Kirk comes in, um, Decker has been in command of the Enterprise throughout the refit and has handpicked his crew, has started this, you know, um, experiment to put a whole bunch of aliens on the Enterprise more than has been previously in Starfleet ships. And, you know, Kirk comes in and says, nope, you're now busted down to commander and I'm the captain. Uh, You know, how does the crew feel about that? The people that Decker picked to crew his ship and... uh, you know, through characters like Ensign Zond, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, we kind of get the perspective on that. And, you know, I really liked that part of the story, but it almost found seemed like they were kind of shoehorning McCoy into that part of the story as a, yet another example of how Kirk has kind of muddied the waters on the Enterprise. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that should have, you know, him kind of replacing Chapel as the chief medical officer is kind of something that sticks in the craw of people in this story too. And I don't think it should have. I think that should have been a little more, not as, not as disruptive as it seemed to be in this story. Well, and the funny thing about that is, is that Chapel is on McCoy's side the whole time. She's just giving him a hard time like she always did. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, there, Yeah. And so there isn't even um, a fight between them, you know, about who should be in charge. She has all respect for McCoy Mm -hmm. you know um, I think McCoy has a lot to do with her becoming a doctor in the first place and so um, of course she respects him and she even says there's nobody better there's no better medical mind that I know than Dr. McCoy Um, and so yeah it just didn't fit but on the other side like you said that fallout from the motion picture and Kirk usurping Decker in command that was really interesting because Kirk really is finding himself again as well in that story you know Mm -hmm. that command is his first best destiny that he is supposed to be on the bridge over the enterprise that's where he belongs and finding out that that is the truth and these other characters that kind of lower decks characters expressing reserve about who captain kirk is because all they know is the character of him that's kind of been played out in the media 
which is kind of fun to see um, <laughs> them deal with, you know, the real Captain Kirk, please stand up, you know, and those characters get to see who the real Captain Kirk is, not just the one that they've kind of heard lionized with the amazing tales of the Enterprise and their five-year mission. So that was a really, I think, important thing um, about the story. And, and I think, like you said, another strong element. Um, so the Kirk and Spock stories are very strong, and it's the McCoy story that it just sadly... I think he wanted all three of those characters to be in a growing stage for the book and so that they come back in the end kind of more where you left them at the end of the original series but wiser and older Mm -hmm. i just don't think the mccoy one worked for me um whereas the other two i really like and i think work successfully yeah i definitely agree there um the kirk and spock story is very 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 strong in my opinion the mccoy story i I might i might not dislike it quite as much as you did but yeah it did seem shoehorned in and definitely not He's not in a place where I would expect the character that we've known all these years to be in. It didn't seem natural. It didn't, it seemed driven by plot rather than driven by where the character should be. Mm. And that is a good, that's a really good point. I I really like that. And I think that's why I didn't respond to it because it didn't feel real to the story. It just felt kind of like a plot point we kind of were shoehorning in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. One of the things that was really interesting about the story was this. Uh, you have this planet of the Yonati, and they uh, have a ton of different religious sects, all kind of based around one religion um, with the Oracle and the idea of what true freedom means. And I thought this is really, really, really important <laughs> for the world that we live in now, that the idea that true freedom means people need to be able to have the freedom to choose even if it's a dissenting view hmm. you know um and that needs to be okay even if it's not popular um you know but that they do have a right to think the way they want to and um you know the inherent danger of what especially what has happened in this book of the extremists and and the, and the small minority um just having the loudest voice and really affecting people and, and is is not always the best, you know. Um, so I just thought that was a really interesting thing. And it's really played off with the Vulcan Sereth, who is much more of that Enterprise-style Vulcan, who thinks basically that he knows what's best, you know, like that the Vulcan way is the only way. Mm. And I really liked... Sereth is challenged, and the priestess says to him, you haven't imposed, Commissioner, but you have judged. You've assumed that the secular path your people took is the only one that can work for anyone else. And so you've implicitly endorsed the state that did the same and alienated those you sought to help. And I really like that idea, you know, just that, that there's this idea that there's only... There's only one thing, you know, there's only one way people can can cope, you know, and I think it really does, and it was nice to see this book say that, because, you know, in Star Trek, most of the time, the answer is the Federation, science, humanistic view, and this character is challenging that, saying, no, it, you you can't say that, you know, in the same way that we kind of learn about the Bajorans with Deep Space Nine. And, you mm-hmm. know, that um, who's to say their view of the prophets isn't right? Because mm-hmm. we don't really know, you know. Um, and some things, that, um, the spiritual answer may be just as valid as anything else you could come up with. So I, I really liked that. Um, it was really nice to see. And it was really interesting because this book was tying in what the... Enterprise series did with the Vulcans because it was written in a time period where that had started to to happen that the show was on so it was nice to see all that play together and, and and give us I think a richer and fuller view of Vulcans because it kind of worked with what we were doing with Spock too mm-hmm. it's it's really funny that you know idic you know in infinite diversity and infinite combination is such a a tenet of the Vulcan way of life, yet so many Vulcans we see really seem to forget that or really, I don't know, just it, it almost seems contradictory that that's part of their 
culture but then you know a character comes along and really demonstrates no that's you know idic does hold true and you know so many of these vulcan characters sometimes seem to forget that for some reason and yeah they're it it's not just that there are lots of different ways there are infinite ways that that people live and people are and you know diversity is such a huge thing about star trek and and in star trek and i love that that's one of the values that it tends to push and i think you know sometimes even star trek itself needs to be reminded of idic every once in a while yeah i think so too and and, and i mean even star trek fans you know the idea that it, it the diversity is tough, you know, if, and if there's a dissenting of you, you don't agree with, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, they don't deserve some kind of respect, you know, and, and, and there's plenty of views out there in my life of people that are out there that I don't agree with, but that doesn't mean I don't respect them mm-hmm. and I don't respect their ability to believe that and, and want to live that out. And so, and it, it's, it's a tough thing to, to be, to, um, look at a person and think I don't agree with how they think but that doesn't mean that I'm better than them mm. you know and I think that's the, that's the, a really great lesson in this book of the idea that you know true freedom true freedom of expression um, in, in this this world is that there should be uh, people that can dissent and that's okay um, and uh, you know choose and, and be able to, yeah, to be able to live that out without fear of being imposed upon to say, no, you need to join the majority or you need to join the minority, you know, or w- whatever it is, you know. So, yeah, it's a tough it's a tough way to live. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the things that true utopia is is really something we can never achieve, you know, because hmm. we're never all going to agree. You know, it's never going to be kumbaya. And uh, we're all good. You know, that's just not going to happen. But it, it's definitely something worth striving for. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, there's kind of the Voltaire quote that I'm sure, you know, half the people out there have had on their Facebook profiles at some point. You know, I do not agree with what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it kind of thing. You know, the whole freedom of speech basis kind of, you know, no, we're not all going to agree, but you know, I would hate to live in a world where we all did agree because the only way we're all going to agree is by force. So that's not going to work. Yeah, it's um, it's not, you know, and, and we're definitely dealing with that in the States these days of of, of having dissenting views throughout the, the country and, and people, you know, it, it's a big deal. So mm-hmm. um, and, and, and being allowed to disagree respectfully with and, and that needs to be OK. So it is really interesting. Um, and it was interesting too because you know these it was the Unati people are going through the Reformation, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Renaissance, all at one time basically. <laughs> um, whereas you know we had hundreds of years for a lot of these things to happen with our faiths and stuff, figuring things out. They're just going through this all at one side, and I just thought it was really interesting that uh, that's the thing that for me about the book some of this stuff becomes a little bit muddled of what the like true theme of the book is because it there's sometimes where it seems to be serving a few different masters of what it's trying to say and they're somewhat contradictory Mm. so um some of those things uh happened for me as i was reading the book but otherwise it was just a it's a really dense book as it all Christopher L. Bennett books are. (laughs) That's very true. Yeah. No, a lot of, and again, I kind of go back to what I said earlier about wanting to come away from a book, not necessarily having my mind made up and that kind of thing. And yeah, in some ways it did feel like it was all over the place a little bit, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot in here to think about and a lot in here to contemplate. And, you know, maybe it's a bit of a failing of the book that it doesn't really focus enough on one thing to make it very clear cut but I did very much appreciate all of the different ideas that kind of ended up rattling around in my brain when I came away from this book you know can religion and and science 
pure logic and that sort of thing, can they coexist, you know, fanaticism, uh, all these different ideas kind of being explored in this book. I, I really enjoyed, um, and yeah, like, like you said, a little bit more focus would have been appreciated, but I really enjoyed kind of wrestling with those ideas, you know, long after I'd put down the book. Well, Christopher L. Bennett has said that he really would like to write more books in this time period. And, uh, he said, unfortunately, you know, that, uh, Ex Machina didn't sell very well. And so, um, doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in the, this time period. You know, I, what I'd say to that is that it was probably the cover of the book. I was that, wondering, that had, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't very interesting. Yeah. And it's a, it's very, it's very different in style from a lot of other Star Trek books. And I'm wondering if that would immediately be a turnoff to people too. Yeah. Well, and it just looks like a late seventies, very early eighties kind of design, you know, with the silver background, the enterprise, the kind of weird shape warp effect for the enterprise and then just the character floating heads. Um, and then, of course, they're they're in the motion picture uniforms. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what I'd say is that you uh, can just, I mean, in Christopher L. Bennett even talked about this extensively in the book. Characters kept mentioning how they didn't really like the pajamas they were wearing. It, it seems the easy answer is just to, to put the motion picture era, but just change the uniforms that the uniforms have changed they're on their new five-year mission in the brand new enterprise and you you've got yourself a book because those maroon jackets on the other hand you put characters in those uniforms i think we all respond to that and give a great cover design with the beautiful refit enterprise heck i would be picking up that story like (laughs) that with that cover definitely yeah uh did you ever read the uh the new earth miniseries uh, I didn't. Novels. I didn't. That's a book series I'd be really interested for us to cover sometime, but just because of it being in that time period. Mm-hmm. I now, I mean, some listener might correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I seem to remember very early in the book, in the first book, uh, and I think it's Diane Carey writes the first book, uh, kind of running with that idea and having uh, the Enterprise crew basically getting the maroon jackets from Starfleet saying like, oh, we're planning on implementing these, you know, in a few months. But you guys are on this long mission. You can have them early. So here you go. <laughs> Which I kind of thought, oh, great. OK, now I can picture them in these maroon jackets throughout the rest of the series rather than the uh, the you know, gray pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I think, and we both for saying, we'd like to have more books in this time period. It, it would just be great if they actually did it. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of wondering in the end where you came down on, you know, for a rating of, of Ex Machina. Well, I was looking through uh, my old review of this, and it was 2012 that I read it in, and I ended up giving it five stars on Goodreads. This... Second reread, or this second read, I guess I should say, um, I don't think I was quite as impressed with it this time around than I was the last time, Uh, but I would say it didn't lose a lot for me. I would say maybe I'm at, you know, 4.75, so probably round up to 5 for me. So I would probably give it um, 5 weird rectangular belt buckles. Or four point seven five out of five. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, this this book actually it did it lost an entire star um, in this reread. I I had had it at five stars on Goodreads, and you know I I had to go in and mark it today as as reread, and it's a four four star. Um, it's it's four oracle attacks and um it's it's not that's still a good star trek book to me kind of a more blasé star trek book is like three and two is like i just really don't like this star trek book Mm -hmm. i wish i didn't have to read it and one is like i didn't finish this star trek book you know so um four is is still a good rating uh and i I do think it's 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 a book that people should read i'd love for more people to read this book so the sales go up and we get more stories, you know, um, because too, I think as well, I've seen Christopher L. Bennett, uh, and his storytelling 
go to the next level from this book as well. So I think if he got the opportunity or somebody else got the opportunity to write in that uh, motion picture era, but maybe with the maroon jackets, more people would be excited uh, about the storyline. And there's so much that you can do in that time period. I mean, there's so much that we would love to learn about, you know, um, because it seems like there are races that really do start to get learned about in that time period. Uh, you know, uh, more trill interaction. Um, who are the first people to discover the Bajorans? Um, even actually, well, I guess from what we know in the novels, Kirk did in Allegiance in Exile. Oh, that's right, um, too. Yeah, the Bajoran so, yeah, colonists. Yeah, exactly. So um, follow up maybe on that. I mean, there's just so many things out there that would be really, really cool to see. Um and uh, again, you know, you put the Refit Enterprise on a book. I'll read it anytime. Yeah, definitely. Well, Matthew, I, I really enjoyed that discussion of Ex Machina. Um, a lot of really interesting things kind of brought up in that discussion there. It, it, it went, I'm going to be honest, a lot deeper than I was expecting. I, I want to apologize to the listeners because I feel like there were sometimes. And hopefully we edited it to where we sound smarter than we actually were because <laughs> there were quite a few times where I think we both had to just stop and try and find words to describe what we we're trying to say because the ideas that we were talking about, I mean, they're, they're the biggest questions that we have, you know, um, and the language just seems to be so unuseful. Sometimes, you know, just so limiting to what we're actually Inadequate trying to talk to the, about. To the yeah, task, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's it was a blast getting to talk about Ex Machina finally here on the show. But it's not the only thing that we have been talking about on Track FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. You know, watching it live to three months after the series ends to watch the Mirror Universe episodes. You're like, you're but, like, uh, whoa, man! I heard season three got dark, but this is crazy. <laughs> it got darkly. <laughs> oh, Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. And so they cannot impart to him the knowledge that he needs in order to raise his son. And Worf doesn't want to raise a human son. Like you said earlier, he didn't get the son that he wanted. He wants to raise a Klingon son. The ready room. We knew that Spock was popular. We knew that Dad had some fans, but we were not prepared for what we saw happening in the social media, in the print media. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the New York Times reported that they got more hits on Dad's obituary than any other person personality in the history of the paper to the journey you're not a member of our race or a member of our culture so we're gonna say no hmm that's kind of boring and yet i don't know what else to do oh screw you <laughs> sorry buddy warp five i remember watching broken bow when enterprise first debuted when i was in high school and we're revisiting it now in full and i had forgotten the fact that future guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. It's all of these top-notch filmmakers, like people like Walter Murch, who literally wrote the book on editing. He, like those guys all teaming up to make a big action kids movie, I think is really cool. The 602 Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel and... You may di you may disagree with it. You may not think it's you know it's great, but it's on purpose. He, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary tricks. It's amazing to me as I reread these stories how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> you know the the actual series. Axenar. The official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. 
but it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and bones. Yes, definitely. Of course bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows, find out what we have been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and, of course, beyond. You know that you will find us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, If you are an Apple user, just looking at the stats the other day and seeing how many people download our shows from Apple places, and it's astounding the numbers that we get. And so hitting that subscribe button will definitely help us out, as will the star ratings and reviews. Guys, we need your help. It's it's you guys that make this possible by um, helping us grow in iTunes and a place like that where most people are getting their podcasts. It's really you. It's on you. So um, I'm asking you to go give us a great review here on Literary Treks, five stars if you really like us. Tell us what you think about the show and with all of the other podcasts we have on the network. We'd really appreciate that. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered everywhere. You can find the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. Of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, all those places have great ways for you to be able to rate and review those shows as well, share the shows, all of those things help us out immensely as we are trying to help people know more about Trek FM. And honestly, guys, it's all about you. Uh, with Patreon, too, that's the way that that we really keep this network going. And it's through you. Um, we can't do this without you. It does cost a lot to put all of this together. It takes a lot of time, too. I was just telling everybody on the 602 Club this week, Um, Kind of the process for what it takes to create a podcast, it's a lot. So just kind of give you an idea of some of the things that go into it. Dan and I pick a day and we record our audio together and we have a meeting software that it costs money. We also have our recording softwares, our microphones, everything else that we've had to do. We've had to buy the books or the comics as well. Um, we put all that together. We we take the audio and then I pull that into our editing software where I put that together with the music and everything else that you hear on the shows, make sure that the, the volumes sound right, make sure that everything else sounds right, edit it together so we sound smarter because sometimes we uh, fumble like crazy. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Um, and putting all that together and, and that editing process takes time. And then, of course, there's publishing the shows uh, on the different media sites, the, the website, everything like that. We have Richard there to help us out, which I could not do this without him. Um, so there's so much that goes into that. We're not even talking about the artwork we have to put together for the show and everything else, social media. So you guys can help us out by helping us make sure that we can continue to do that. And and go to patreon.com slash trekfm. You can see all the great perks that we have for you guys that come with things, not just the shows, but you can get exclusive content. We're doing, um, some of our members got together to do the Patreon roundtable, which was so exciting for them. They were at a certain level. Um, we are trying to reach certain milestones for our funding as well. We would like to do be able to do some things. And we honestly have something I'm so jealous that the Patreon members are going to get soon uh, that we're working on for you guys. I really want one myself. Um, I can't tell you what it is, but it's really awesome. And we really appreciate your support. We And we just want you to join the team. Uh, again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm now here's some important things we talk about every week some ways that you can contact us and there's some things what we would love to do we'd love you to go to trek.fm slash contact tell us what you thought about x machina or maybe some book ideas that you have or things that you would like to hear us talk about here on literary treks you could leave us a voicemail to do that in the sidebar on the show page go to speakpipe.com slash trek fm you know we're on twitter at trek fm but you know what you can do to help us out when you see those shows tweeted out, hey, new Literary Treks, hey, new uh, Standard Orbit, new Earl Grey, 602 Club, retweet those. Tell people on your social media about us. You can do that with Facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can share um, the shows that we share there. You can 
help people know who we are by by being our grassroots workers to help people know more about Trek FM. The same way you found Trek FM, it may have come from a friend um, and so, or somebody you knew or you may have just seen us online. Well, that took somebody doing that and you can do that for us as well. We would love for you to join us in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners only discussion group. We have a blast there. We talk about some of the most amazing Star Trek things as well as everything else that we do with the 602 Club. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And then for you guys on our Goodreads group, we keep track of the books that we're reading currently, the books that are coming up as well, and we then have the bookshelves that are full of all the books that we've done on previous shows, and you can check those out. So if you're wondering, oh, have they done that book? Well, you can check out the Goodreads group. All of these things are available on the show page. And you can find that on the website at trek.fm. I'd really like to thank our associate producers. These are the guys through Patreon who make this show possible each week. Will Win, he's on Twitter at Will underscore Win, and of course he's on the Babel Conference. And the associate producer for The Orb and Earl Grey, also our content manager here on the network. I'd also like to say huge thank you to Ken Tripp and his support and for being an associate producer on Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not hanging out in the rec room trying to break up a fight between three different alien species there on the Enterprise, where can we find you? Oh, man, it's it's a constant struggle. There's just, you know, this infinite diversity. Sometimes it's not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Matthew, you can find me online. My website is www.treklit.com, and there I have reviews of Star Trek novels, both new and old, including Ex Machina. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Treklet Reviews and on Facebook.com slash Treklet Reviews. And, uh, you know, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference or on our Goodreads group. And uh, Matthew, when you're not installing an emotion chip into your laptop trying to give it that simple feeling, where can we find you? Uh, I'm hooked on a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my laptop will not start singing that song. Oh, it's so annoying. But uh, when I'm not trying to get it to stop singing, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones. We talk about Deep Space Nine. You can find me on the 602 Club where we talk about all things geeky. We talk about Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, comics, new movies coming out, old favorites like Jurassic Park. We've got it covered for you. Just join us there. It's so much fun. And then I do my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com and that's where you can find my movie reviews that I do, book reviews, other things like that. Things that are just important to me. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, you know, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.